Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, September 4th, and we're tackling some listener questions in the tech space. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and to get some good answers, I've got Joey Salitro joining me. Joey, how you doing? I'm doing good. Pleasure to be back and hang out with you. Yeah. I mean, you on multiple occasions have talked about how you like doing some stock flash rounds, you know, running through, giving some thoughts uh, a little bit quicker than some of the deep dives that we've done in the past to be able to cover a little bit more ground. We're going to have you do that on today's show because we have a bunch of listener questions about some stocks and we can't get to them all in full episodes. So we're going to do maybe like three or four minutes on each of these and then we're going to tackle a question about gauging uh, foreign management and inside ownership. So a lot of questions coming in here. We're going to try to do what we can in a short amount of time and cover these as well as we can, but I'm excited. I'm excited too. Let's do it. All right. Our first question comes from Alap, and I hope I'm saying that correctly. Alap asks, can you do a deep dive on Square? Why has it completely exploded over the last few months? And and Joey, I mean, to say completely exploded and put some numbers to that, Square's up 140% year to date and about 300% since late March. Those are, those are some big numbers. <laughs> Square, PayPal, those have both been absolute monsters this year. And you know, as the the pandemic has unfolded, digital payments and the companies that you know enable these have really taken off because where Square also has the point of sales terminals in a lot of these restaurants and they could have faced a major headwind from this, that shift to e-commerce and you know the need for the cash app, you know, becoming more relevant in our society. And then the acquisition of Weebly a long time ago that enables uh, people to build e-commerce websites. Now, I wish they would have kept the caviar service, which is kind of like enabling uh, food delivery services from restaurants, because that would have seen some explosive growth, much like Uber Eats. But you know, with people kind of seeing money as being dirty now, and they don't want anything being handed from you know from one person to another, it's just they they're in that sweet spot uh, that I always like to talk about when it comes to COVID with the e-commerce and digital payment trends. So yeah, we've seen that stock absolutely take off and there's no telling where, you know, where this one could go. I think investors here are probably finally being rewarded for their patience. You know, if, if you wound up buying uh, Square at some other points over the last couple of years, you might be a little disappointed. Um, you know, there was that period where they just had explosive growth in 2017, 2018, and then eh, stock just kind of hung out for a while. And I think looking at COVID, a lot of people would have said, okay, wow, this is going to really devastate a lot of the core places where their readers are being used. Farmers markets, retail, that's going to decimate a lot of that activity. And and the stock sold off dramatically as COVID concerns really started to ramp up. The Cash App story has just been incredible, though. That has been one of those things that blossomed out of everything that we're dealing with and became a real strength for this business. I'm going to borrow from a Wall Street Journal article here. Thanks in part to Squares making it easy for individuals to accept their stimulus checks and unemployment benefits in the Cash App. The amount of money stored there reached $1.7 billion in the second quarter, three and a half times more than the same period last year. Uh, basically, the same movement that we saw with the stock itself, Joey, three and a half times. <laughs> That cash app is just something special. Um, And, you know, Square, I've had a long history with this one. I bought this, 
years ago. I want to say three years ago in the 30s. And I had a massive gainer. And when COVID struck, this actually went to the point where it bottomed and I was back in the red on my position. So it just shows just how wild of a ride this stock has been, even for me over the last couple of years. But now they've really come into their element. And I mean, not to say COVID was good in any way, but for certain businesses, especially those operating in the e-commerce or digital payment space, this is basically their time to shine. And both Square and PayPal have been absolutely knocking out of the park in terms of execution. Yeah, I think their execution has been fantastic. Um, and they're actually probably going to wind up emerging from this a much stronger business than they were pre-COVID. And and it's because they've focused so much on the Cash App. They've been able to deliver great experience for people and build out this other really important part of their business. We know that retail is going to come back at some point. We know that these interactions are going to come back at some point. And when it does, not only will they have that core business that so many people associate with Square, but they're also going to have the Cash App as a very dominant story. And I think that that's really compelling. I mean, the the market caps alone, just to kind of give you a sense of where this could go, you know, Square is still about a $65 billion business, even after this crazy run. PayPal, over $200 billion. So I, I think there's a pretty big growth ramp here. This is one of those companies that's not going away anytime soon. It's definitely a snap test business, right? People are going to notice if Square disappears. That's been such a big part of the thesis. But now they've got a really good second line there with the Cash App. Yeah, and that's it's almost like that's what they needed to really become that dominant player with millennials and Gen Z. And it's amazing because you know Venmo and PayPal, I feel like those had the spotlight for so long. But my brother-in-law, Albert, actually introduced me to the Cash App. And then it out of nowhere, everybody was using it. And, you know, he's the GM of a bar in Tallahassee. And he was saying, you know, almost everything, every payment at the door, everything's just done from the Cash App. And he, that's where he was explaining. So you could see it exploding within the, the college culture. And from there, it just kind of spurred. And you see that network effect take off. So I definitely think the Cash App has been what's kind of spurred the Square story. But then everything else that they built along the way has really taken off. And I think people are finally no longer questioning whether Jack Dorsey can run two companies. Yeah. And I, and I think part of the reason why Square was in this like no man's land for a little while as a stock and it was that Sarah Fryer was such a big part of the story with that business for a long time. And, and her leaving to go over to Nextdoor left a pretty big vacancy. You know, it's it's hard to be the CEO of two companies at the same time, especially two big businesses. And I think Sarah Fryer was pretty involved in the day-to-day for Square. So it doesn't surprise me that they had to retool a little bit to handle her absence. It seems like they've enjoyed some tailwinds and they've managed to figure things out though. Yeah, same situation as, you know, Sarah Fryer leaving from Square, going to next door. You had Adam Bain who was supposed to be the next CEO of Twitter and then he ends up leaving going somewhere else. You know, everybody's kind of waiting to unseat Jack Dorsey, but, you know, Jack's executing right now. So, I mean, he's the guy that I want running the companies right now until, uh, you know, until he proves otherwise. Yeah. And, and and you threw out PayPal and we often look at all of these different spaces, Joey, and we say, okay, well, like who's the winner here? And I think Jason Moser's done a great job talking about this on the Monday show, but it's okay to look at a space like digital payments and say, I think there are going to be a couple people who wind up getting a pretty sizable portion of this market. You know, if you'd put equal money into PayPal and Square, you'd be doing quite well. You don't have to pick one winner and be right here. Yeah, I love the the processors or the people that just kind of like facilitate the movement. 
uh, where you, I know that Square and PayPal both have like the capital sides where they're lending or doing, you know, pay in installments now. But yeah, like the the Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Square, I don't think you have to pick one of them. Uh, you could if you are trying to build something more diversified. But yeah, anything involved that has that massive footprint within the digital payment space, I don't think you're going to go wrong, especially as the, you know, we continue to see this increased digitization across the world and we shift more towards digital payments. And yeah, the, the wind's at their backs, that's for sure. Yeah, I don't think we should get too used to the returns that we've seen over the last, uh, you know, eight months or a year or so. But um, I do think there's plenty of green space ahead of this business. I'm a shareholder and I look at this business and just say, like, it's going to be here in 10 years. There's, I think it's going to be very hard for someone to unseat where they are in the market. People like using the product. The Cash App gives them another insulation from competition. A lot of things going right. Just right size your expectations. Realize that it's not going to be going bonkers forever. Yeah, I feel like with the rally we've seen in the market from the March lows, if you're sitting on massive gains in these companies, they might not do anything for the next two years. And that's where I've continued to tell people, you know, if this trades sideways for a while, don't get bored of your holdings. Then you just got to look at the compound annual growth rate against the market. Because yeah, if a stock returns 300%, then does nothing for two years, you're still, if you look at the compound over those three years, it's still a massive winner. So don't let you know a quote unquote underperformance over the next couple of years deter you from holding on to these monsters for the long term. And that's maybe what happened, you know, when we're looking at mid to late 2018 through uh, early 2020 with this company. You know, the the valuation got very big very fast, and very often the business fundamentals have to come in there and back things up. And with what we're seeing in terms of valuation stretching out and software and really anything digital, I wouldn't be shocked if that happens again. Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, they grow into their valuations where they got ahead of themselves and then they see this explosive growth. And then it's like, wait a second, those valuations weren't all that out of hand. And then you see that premium multiple placed back on those shares. So yeah, it's been a wild ride and I, I don't expect it to change anytime soon. But yeah, for these high growth, best in class, gold standard type services, they're worth paying up for. All right. For our second question, Joey, going from a household name to maybe one that people aren't as familiar with, uh, John wrote in, Hey, just listening to the deep dive you guys did on C-Limited, would love to hear something similar for Gravity, G-R-V-Y, which was alluded to as a possibility uh, in the podcast itself. So, Joe, this is you basically planting the seeds <laughs> for you to come on and discuss the company again. This is one you followed for a bit. So Gravity is one that's much like C Limited, where when I first got to the full here in March 2019, that I, I would just annoy people about nonstop. I'd just be like, oh, have you, do you know C Limited? Do you know C Limited? And finally, it, it catches on. And Gravity is one, you know, since the 30s or 40s per share, now it's up in the 90s last I checked. And it's still very small in terms of market cap, but it's one that I see in the gaming space that has absolutely taken certain markets by storm. So they're... Their game, essentially, at Gravity is called Ragnarok. It's one of the multiplayer action games. And it's just one of those like immersive environments when gamers get in there. It originated in Korea, and it's just quickly expanding in Asia. So I see the explosive number of gamers coming to that platform. And you kind of see, okay, this isn't just a one-hit wonder where the game's going to come out and then they need a new one. It's more like Free Fire, which C-Limited owns, or like a Call of Duty one of those franchises that has staying power and can kind of, you know, they just need to introduce new features or enter new markets to really spur that growth. 
So it, it's been a beautiful thing to see them kind of come into their own. And it, where you say, yeah, I've kind of planted this seed on a previous episode. I think bringing this up, we kind of got to give a hat tip to all of our Swedish investors where uh, on Twitter, I got to say, uh, the, the Swedish investing in, uh, environment, it seems like everybody owns Gravity because the number of requests I get to bring it to you and get it onto a show or do a deep dive has been quite incredible. I think one of my favorite things about doing the show is seeing at MF Industry Focus tagged on Twitter in foreign languages. It's so fun. And, and, and Swedish actually happens quite a bit. But to realize the reach that we have and that people in other countries are listening to the show and just... We're not just talking to U.S. investors, um, and we're not just looking at U.S. companies, and so it's natural that the, the conversation would expand, but I get a kick out of that. I think it's super fun. We have to drop some stuff into Google Translate because we are not uh, bilingual, as it turns out, Joey, but it's it's a fun feature of the FinTwit community. Um, for the U.S. investors that are a little bit less familiar, Gravity is a $500 million company. You, you alluded to the fact that it's still pretty small on a market cap basis. We've seen a lot of really big winners come out of the online gaming space because this franchise model is so bankable once you have that lightning in a bottle. Yeah, you see that network effect. We really only need one gamer to come on or one very popular live streamer, whether you know it's Twitch or one of these other big platforms. As soon as someone gets on there, then you get all these viewers, you get more players. And yeah, you see every game wants to become that franchise. Just like every Disney movie, they want to really take off. Like you look at Frozen, they thought that was just going to be a good movie. It's turned into this multi-billion dollar franchise that now has like its own part of a Disney park. So every game just wants to be launched and become that immersive environment where they can just continue to add new features, the next Fortnite, the next Free Fire. And Ragnarok is definitely becoming that. So yeah, when I'm looking at this market cap of 500 million, and I don't own shares yet myself, it's one that I've watched... I remember seeing the stock like in the 10s and 20s and always thinking like, I want to watch this one take off. But, you know, with companies like this, being a $500 million company amongst uh, an industry worth hundreds of billions, I know that I have plenty of time. So I'm basically, you know, just, just waiting for my right time to strike or when my portfolio demands it. My, my focus has been elsewhere. But if Ragnarok continues to deliver, then it's going to main, maintain its spot on my radar. I think one of the compelling parts of this stock too, and, and this company, is relatively reasonable valuation given everything we just said about the tech space. So, two hundred and forty million in sales uh, on a uh, trailing twelve-month basis, and they're doing that at thirty-three percent gross margins. It's actually profitable, twenty-six million in income during that time. Um, that's two times sales and 20 times earnings, Joey. That doesn't sound like a software company to me. <laughs> and see, and that's where I come across a lot of these smaller names. And I remember um, when Gravity, I think it was like 36 or something like that, I passed it on to another gaming analyst. And I'm like, this might be too small for services right now, but I want you to watch it. And that's kind of one of my specialties. I like to find these smaller companies, even like an on-track that we've talked about before, where I'm looking at the growth rates and I'm seeing, wait, this is only four times sales when you've got other competitors in this space that are trading 20, 30 times sales, like why not this one? So then you see Gravity with just as good a growth as any other gaming company and it's profitable. And you see, you know, it's a relatively small company with the the wind at its back. And you're like, so why can't this trade at a premium multiple like these other names? And those are the situations that I, I love to invest in and get behind. So um, I'm glad it's finally to a respectable, quote unquote, market cap that we can actually bring it up on this show. 
So you mentioned growth, and I think that is one of the kind of curious elements of this business. Uh, stocks near all-time highs. You look back over the last five years, and it has been very bumpy. And that's because the growth trajectory of this business has changed pretty crazily in a, in a short period of time. Um, there have been periods where they've had triple-digit year-over-year growth in the last two or three years. Over the past couple quarters, we're seeing some numbers that are coming in negative and single-digit growth. Um, how are you making sense of all that? And that's what's kind of kept me away from this stock. So when I first came across it, yes, it was posting triple-digit growth. And then out of nowhere, it's showing negative growth. And so I'm like, okay, maybe this game isn't as popular. And then it just reaccelerates. It's it's like having a child driving a car. Like you see it just absolutely accelerate and then come to a screeching halt. So that's one that's kind of confused me. So that's where I've slowly just kind of like quarter by quarter followed the story. I'm like, okay, so it's entering this market. Okay, it's a top download in this market. And trying to piece together the story to really get a strong feel for it. Which much like I did with C Limited, where I had bought a small stake uh, on its IPO day, and then it was a very bumpy ride from there. And then you kind of see, okay, they're they're delivering in this unit. Okay, now they're expanding within this unit, and you can kind of see as not only like the unit economics come into play, but you see that they're actually delivering on their plan. So Gravity, as they're entering all these new markets, as the game has continued to attract new users, it has began to begun to deliver on their plan, but it's still one that I want to see management really execute for a little bit longer and keep that growth, you know, over 30% consistently for a couple of years, or even see like that acceleration where maybe the game becomes top three in every market that it's in or, or something, some sort of big partnership that really forces my hand. Yeah. And this gets into the challenges of investing in businesses that operate primarily outside of our core market, right? We are um, not as aware of this business because they're looking primarily at Japan, Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, so we just mentioned the, the love that we have for our foreign listeners. If anyone is familiar with this business, familiar with this game, we'd love to get a better sense of, of kind of what it looks like on your end, because we have to, unfortunately, just kind of put together what we think it looks like and and kind of take a triangulation of analyst estimates, what we read in the news, what we're seeing in terms of the rankings and make sense of it that way. Yeah. And any other companies that come across, I know Shopify, one of the Motley Fool's biggest winners over the last you know five, six years came from, I don't know if it's Tom or David Gardner, you know, talking to Canadian investors and getting a feel for, you know, the most exciting growth companies in their markets. So, you know, any company that seems to be taking shares really absolutely taking off. Yeah. Tweet it at me, tweet it uh, at Dylan, tweet it at Molly Full Industry Focus, you know, kind of bring it to our radar and then we can monitor it from there. Because trust me, if you tweet about a ticker that I don't know, because I know thousands of companies. So if you send me something that I don't know, you're going to immediately get my attention. That could be a fun game in the future, uh, whether or not Joey knows the company. Uh, we can see if we can work that into some programming. <laughs> we always uh, we always joked having like, uh, there used to be a show on ESPN called Stump the Schwab, where you try to you know stump the genius in sports. It's like, yeah, try to stump me with a ticker. I'd love to. <laughs> uh, at MF Industry Focus, if you want to tag the show in that, Joey, you are at Joey Salitro? Yes, sir. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, we have two more questions. We're going to try to hit them relatively quickly. Shantanu asks, hey, guys, there's something that caught my eye recently. I work as a software engineer and use build cloud technologies every day. Nutanix is bringing a very interesting take on the cloud. It is not something entirely new, but it is a niche market compared to the actual 
infrastructure as a service service that AWS, Azure, et cetera, offer. Would love to get your opinion and see if it looks like a good business to invest in. Now, I did an S1 show on Nutanix with Evan New years ago when this company went public. I admittedly have not followed it super closely since then, um, but this is definitely one of those in-the-weeds tech stocks, Joey. Yeah, Nutanix has been a wild ride since its IPO. Um, I remember when it came public, it was hot out of the gates. It crashed down into the low teens and then just absolutely took off. Now, what they've been doing is they've been converting to a 100% subscription-based business, and it has not been the smoothest of transitions. Uh, you've seen this company pull all the way back to its you know, IPO lows, and they finally delivered on that. And you kind of see why they're doing that, not only for the recurring revenues, because that's what investors really love right now, but their gross margins from, I think it was like the low 60s, are now pushing the 80%. So you can really get a feel for that path to profitability for these guys. Now, as they've begun executing on their plan, and COVID should really be a tailwind for them because hyperconverged infrastructure, they've they have an entire part on their website where it's like, hey, we help enable the work from home environment and make it quicker and more efficient. However, then you see this last earnings release. Yeah, they're getting an investment. I think it's from Bain Capital, like seven hundred plus million dollars. But then the CEO puts in a transition plan where I would think as soon as like this this hard fought battle is finally coming to an end and you're you're ready to just absolutely go into growth mode and deliver on that plan that you've had in place for years, now you're saying you want somebody else to lead the company. So it was weird. And then we saw the stock kind of rage on that news. It's one that I've been watching closely. It, I'd say it's one of the top 20 on my watch list that I've been looking to initiate a position and actually grow it in because I used to own it but sold it as things kind of got dicey. But it is the best at what they do when it comes to hyperconverged infrastructure. There's VMware and some other players, but Nutanix is by far the best, especially when I talk to different software engineers in the space that actually use these types of products. So I believe in the long term they will be a very successful company, but you know, it's not something that I'm itching to buy just yet. To unpack what they do a little bit, just because uh, I realize some people might not be familiar with this business, I'm going to borrow from their site. Uh, Nutanix software unifies private, public, and distributed clouds and empowers IT to deliver applications and data that power their businesses. Nutanix solutions are built on the industry's most popular hyper-converged infrastructure, which you mentioned before, Joey, uh, a complete 100% software-defined stack that integrates compute, virtualization, storage, networking, and security to power any application at any scale. Even having done a pretty in-depth show on them a couple of years ago. My big summary with this was it's a little outside of my wheelhouse and I don't think I have an edge in this space. So I stayed on the sidelines. Um, we have seen historically, and there are some software as a service companies that have gone through exactly the type of transformation you're talking about. Um, if you are a believer in a business and you see them going through this awkward phase where it's kind of like growing your hair out, you know, it looks really good when it's short and it looks really good when it's long. If you're trying to go from one to the other, you wind up with this period where things look kind of ugly. Um, that can actually be a great time to buy shares because the numbers look a lot worse before they look better. And ultimately, they should be moving to a model that's better long term. Um, it's just going to be a little ugly while they get there. Exactly. And that's where I even like defer to you know, G2 Crowd, um, Gartner, Forrester, these different research outlets that kind of show me, hey, what's the pulse of this certain type of software and who are the leaders in it. And if you bring up hyperconverged infrastructure, Nutanix is always 
the absolute top. Like no one's even close to where they are. It's it's incredible to see just how loved they are at what they do, but to see just how badly the stock has performed and how the growth rates have been impacted by this move to a subscription-based business. Now, I think it will get much better now that like this transition is coming to a close and then we'll likely see the top line reaccelerate and that would be beautiful if they can, you know, get into the mid 20s and high 20s and even back into the 30s or something like that. But it, you know, it remains to be seen and I want to see them execute over the next couple quarters and I want to see that reacceleration take place and then put my money to work. It's almost like, you know, watch that horse start winning the race and then throw your money at it. And this is a classic case of looking beyond the numbers on a stock, right? If, if you were looking at the income statement and you were saying, you know, what the heck happened? They went from 100% year over year growth to 70 to 37, and now they're in the single digits. Like, what's going on with this business? Um, this would look really unappealing without the context that they're going through a transformation in how they run their business and how they build their customers. So, always good to get the context. Can't just look at the screeners. Screeners are a good way to start the conversation, but you need the background. And see, and that's where, uh, you know, I get a lot of crap for being Mr. IPO and buying a lot of IPOs, but I, I follow so many stories, I say, from when they're born into the market. So as these companies are born, I like to read through the S1 or F1, and I know here's where they've been, here's where they are when they come public, and I'm watching each quarter. So I, I saw Nutanix as it just was in absolute growth mode, and then I saw like the whole story play out. So that's why I think it's always important to follow as many companies as you can and learn as much as you can about it. Because yeah, if I were looking at Nutanix just to prepare for the show, I'd be like, why are we talking about this crap? But knowing what I know from the beginning and where it is now, I can kind of say like, yeah, these guys were crushing it. They're transitioning. They could crush it again. This isn't something just to completely write off. So you're spot on with that. All right. Three pretty quick stock breakdowns. I think we did a good job with that, Joe. Uh, before we wrap up the show, though, we have a general investing question, and this is an awesome one. Um, so I'm really glad this one came in. Uh, it comes from Travis. Travis asks, "Hey guys, just wondering where I can find insider ownership for foreign companies. Many don't seem to have a proxy per se, and I haven't found the answer with Google searches. I think I'm missing something. Could you guys help?" And Joey, you did a little background sleuthing on this one. What do you got for us? Yeah, so this can be tricky. But the thing is, if they're listed on a US exchange, we're going to have some SEC filings. So it's called a Form 20F. That's what you want to bring up. And I always have like small tricks. Even when I'm going through an S1, like I'll hit Control Find and I'll look for certain words. So like I'll look at the initial like pictures where they're showing revenue growth and all that. Then I'll jump to, okay, what do they say their total addressable market is? Where Let's see what the last three months, six months, year looked like and all that. So when you bring up that uh, Form 20F, what you're going to want to go to is there's a part where they're talking about all the directors and what they do. And it, you know it's going to be down into like the hundreds. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and, and so, for people that haven't looked at this paperwork before, there are probably 500 plus pages in a 20F. Yeah. And, and luckily, it's, it's kind of like a template and then the companies have to fill it in themselves. So you can search the words terms of directors and that's where they're going to list you know, all the employees, like the number of employees, all that. And then there's a part where it's called share ownership. And if you go down a little bit further, you're going to see beneficial ownership. And that's where you're going to see directors and executive officers. So like I have C limited that I had pulled up just for this example. And I see, you know, they have like 12 directors and executive officers. Here's their class A ordinary shares, their percentage of total voting power held. 
And then you can see even like principal shareholders, like other entities or VC firms, anything like that. So form 20F, terms of directors, and then the share ownership section. And that's going to give you everything you need. I can't overstate enough the importance of the control F function when it comes to going through prospectuses and really any financial documents. It makes things so much easier. I, I would love to have the time to read through everything, but the reality is we have to skip around a little bit to make sure we're focused on the right stuff. Uh, it took it took a while to perfect my process, but I know exactly which words I want because yeah, you get all the generic language. We are an emerging growth company, which means X, Y, and Z. And it's like all the same language, which is all just the legal jargon that they have to include. But, you know, if you know the right terms, it's almost like, you know, plugging in your checklist. Okay, here's here's the important stuff. And then you really get a well-rounded view of what the company is and, and what they do and how they're doing it. Well, um, I think that's going to do it for this mailbag episode, Joe. Thanks so much for hopping on. Thanks so much for having me. Until next time. Until next time. And, and we plugged it multiple times on the show. But uh, if you want us to talk about anything at MF Industry Focus, he is at Joey Salitro. I am at Wiley Lewis. You can always shoot us an email at Industry Focus as well. We love getting show ideas. We love getting your questions. And we also love getting stock ideas. I mean, you know, shoot some stuff our way. Uh, these roundups are super fun for us to do. We can even make some themes out of them if we get enough of them. I like the idea of possibly stumping Joey at some point in the future. Um, and if you're a regular listener, you know this already, but you can get your podcasts over on iTunes. Subscribe there, wherever you get your shows. Spotify, Stitcher, we're there with all of our shows beyond just industry-focused. Market foolery, Motley Fool Money, Motley Fool Answers, Rule Breaker Investing, we got it all. As always, people on the programs may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass, and thank you for listening. Fool on. Fool on.